you all will turn to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. I'll be kind of reading from uh, a different translation from you guys, so do your best to follow along. I'm going to read that as we start here, starting in verse 12. And I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, many of the Christians here have gained confidence and become more bold in telling others about Christ. Some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know the Lord brought me here to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they teach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But whether or not their motives are pure, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached. So I rejoice and will continue to rejoice. So I titled this sermon, Unstoppable God, partly because we sang that song today, and I knew we were singing that song, but but also because I think that there's a strong undercurrent within this passage. Um, and so there's, there's two main points that I'm, I'm going to draw our attention to. And the first one is that God's sovereignty over situations or circumstances. God's sovereignty over situations. The second is God's sovereignty over motivations. God's sovereignty over motivations. So one of the TV shows that uh, Jessica and I started watching recently is, is about a, a school program that's um, a college football program where people go after they mess up. So they, they, they go there, they, they've screwed up in Division I football, um, they've gotten kicked out for whatever reasons that might be. Um, and so they go to this, this program and it's sort of like a rehabilitation. They, they take them, they need to prove that they can get their act together, they need to prove that they can um, stay focused and not go back to whatever issue had, had gotten them fired, and then hopefully they can prove to a scout that they are good enough to go back to Division I football, and ultimately to go to pro. And that, that's really the whole point of them going here, or, or else they would probably quit, is they're, they're trying to get to the NFL so they can make it big and make a lot of money and achieve a lot of success. And so... What I, what I want to draw our attention to that analogy I want to use is that a lot of these players go through a lot of suffering. They are genuinely put through the ringer. I, I never played football in high school, and after watching this documentary, I'm glad I didn't. It's, um, it's a lot. They are running all day. They're basically getting hit all day, and then when they're done with that, they, um, what, for some reason, they, I feel like they enjoy this, but they get into a bucket full of ice, which... Sounds terrible. And, and then they sleep for a couple hours. They wake up, and most of them skip class. And then they go and um, practice again for three or four hours. And it's day in and day out. They're going through this. They're training. They're lifting weights. They're, they're, all of their time is spent focused on this. And so um, and a lot of times the coaches are, are, are grilling them. They're making them do push-ups. They're making them run laps. They're making them spend extra time in the gym, doing this, doing that, doing this. 
And then apart from that, they have a, a, a position at the school that the sole purpose is to make sure that those kids go to class. That's the sole purpose of that position is make sure the football players can actually academically graduate. And so it's, it, it's nuts. They're, they're going through all this um, har- hardship. They're going through all of this labor to get there. And the reality is some of them see the goal, they see the prize at the end, and some of them don't. And that determines how they handle this suffering. That determines how they handle a coach screaming in their face. That handles how they react when they're getting into a bath full of ice. It determines how they react when a coach tells them to roll on the ground from one end zone to the other. And so my fear today is that Christians, often we miss the point. We miss the point of suffering. We miss the point of the hardships that happen in our life. And, and it's crucial that we, we get it. It's crucial that we understand. And Paul here gets it. So I want to draw our attention to the first part here in verse 12 where he says, I want you to know, dear brothers, that everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. And, and without going into a long list of what Paul's gone through, we, we, we sort of know he's been in chains. He says that here. He's been in jail. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. Paul has gone through a lot, a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution for the gospel. But he says here with such confidence, I want you to know that everything that has happened to me, everything has helped to spread the good news. So Paul gets it. And he's making a point to tell here, him and Timothy, in the book of Philippians, he's making a point that the reader gets it. He wants the reader to get why he's suffering, and he wants, to get the, he wants the reader to understand why they might suffer as well. He's pleading with them to understand the true prize that's, that's hidden through the trials. And he says there in verse 13, for everyone here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, many Christians here have gained the confidence to become more bold in telling others about Christ. God uses the weak things of this world, the weak, small, insignificant things of this world to bring about his glorious will. That should cause us to rejoice, shouldn't it? That something insignificant, something uh, weak, something frail is God's tool to bring about a glorious thing, to bring about his will, his kingdom. And we see this all through uh, God's word. I, I want to specifically uh, have us look over to 1 Corinthians 1.27. You turn over couple pages of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, I'm actually going to read from 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose the things the world considers foolish 
in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. He chooses the weak things of this world. And this is not just a teaching that just Paul teaches in the New Testament. We see this from cover to cover. If you look at the life of Abraham, God called him as, uh, I mean, as a pagan, somebody who wasn't following God. And he is obedient and he goes and he's somebody that, that doesn't have a, a land but God gives him a great promise. He doesn't have children but God gives him a great promise. He takes somebody weak and he's become a patriarch to the faith. Or think of David, somebody who is tending to flocks of sheep, somebody who um, is not of, of high standing. And even when we think about how David came to become king, he is the last one considered as they go through all of uh, David's brothers. And he, he's not even at uh, the place where Samuel's at, and yet he has to come. And then um, beyond that, he's running away from, from King Saul, who's chasing him down. Somebody who's weak and on the run. He becomes a man after God's own heart. He becomes a great king that ultimately the line of Christ would come through. And then there's, there's no greater model of this weak thing to bring about God's great will other than Jesus himself. God came in the flesh, but he did not come as a political figure in power. He did not come as somebody mighty who is um, in the world's uh, setting in the world's view. He did not come as somebody to be praised. We see that in Isaiah. But he came as a suffering servant. He says that came to serve and not to be served. Wow. That Christ, that, that God would serve, that he would suffer, that he would um, go to the weak and the needy, that he would go to the poor, that he would suffer some of the, the greatest suffering ever to save mankind. And so that brings, uh, that brings me back to think of uh, the call to worship here of 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. He says this again. Never forget that Jesus Christ was a man born into King David's family. He was raised from the dead. And this is the good news I preach. And because I preach the good news, I am suffering and I have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. And I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. So look, look at what uh, Paul's suffering brings. Look at what it does here. We see in verse 13 that uh, the, the guards in the prison know why he's there. The guards in the prison, it says, they know that he is in chains because of Christ. And more than that, in verse 14, he says, the other believers are encouraged and now the good news is spreading because they are, are being bold in their faith. When they see 
Paul suffering for the good news. It encourages Christ's church, God's church, his people to go and preach and proclaim that God saves. And so this is an amazing uh, reality that we, we need to come to understand that God is sovereign over situations. He is sovereign over circumstances. That his control does not stop at your suffering. His control and his power and his will does not stop when things are hard, when things seem dim. No, he is using those. He's so clearly using it here in the text that he is using Paul's suffering, his chains, the imprisonment, to advance God's kingdom, to advance and spread the good news. And just as a, as a side point, the world watches how we suffer. And I think that's key for us to understand as well. Let us not move away from that. We, we see here that, uh, that Paul and Timothy are saying that uh, the guards know why he's in there. The world is watching how you, Christian, how you, brothers and sisters, how I am suffering. Are you suffering well? Are you suffering poorly? Are you suffering in faith with your eyes fixed on Christ? Are you suffering with your head to the ground without hope, empty? And I think that that and I think that what Paul is, is getting at here is that when we suffer, we have means to rejoice. And we'll get to that later. But look in verse 18, so I will rejoice that all these things that are happening are, are good. Yes, they're painful here. Yes, they, they make life tough now, but they're good because they're advancing God's kingdom. God is in control of them. God is sovereign. He is good. He is king. He is Lord. So I will rejoice. That's, that's freeing. That should be freeing to us. God is in control. That when we sing up here, praise to the Lord the Almighty, the king of all creation, that that is... Uh, that is a complete control. That is not a control that is limited by the suffering of this world. So rejoice as you suffer. As hard as that is to say and as hard as that is to do in the moment, rejoice. Rejoice. And so that leads to the second point, that God is sovereign over motivations. He is sovereign over motivations. He was sovereign over situations and circumstances, things that happen, but he's also Lord over motivations. So going back to the analogy of uh, this, this show that we, we like to watch with the, with the coaches and the players is that the coaches are the ones oftentimes inflicting these, these trials, making the players go through the, the ringer. And, and again, just as some of the players get it and some of the players don't get it, same goes with the coaches. Some of them know that the suffering that they're, that they're giving them is so that they can succeed. And some of them don't. Some of them just genuinely don't like the players and they want to make them run. But here's the key is that for the player that understands the reason for the suffering, the end is the same. So think about that. 
So if you have a coach that, that doesn't really want the player to succeed, and so he's making them run laps, he's frustrating them, he's um, exhausting them, but for the player that knows that all of these light momentary afflictions are producing in him something great, that, that what the coach is doing, whether he, the coach realizes it or not, is strengthening him, making him better, and so he will succeed. And so the same goes for those who are of the faith. That some people, as Paul says, don't have pure motives, and they want to make the chains heavier. Look in verse 15. Some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know the Lord brought me here to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. And so in Paul's case, there's very much people trying to, to rub it in that are trying to make his chains heavier, to make his suffering worse. You'll have situations like that in your lives where you feel like you're going through a hard time, but the people in your lives, the world just seems to smile and laugh. And that there might be people that, that instead of sympathizing with your suffering, they only seem to make it worse and to enjoy it. And so one of the most joyful truths that we can understand as believers is that God is sovereign over man and his motivations. That God is king, he is Lord, that Jesus has died and raised to life, and that nothing is out of his lordship. And again, just as we saw with the previous point, this happens from cover to cover. This is not an isolated situation in Philippians. Think of the story of Joseph, who his brothers uh, did not like him. He was the father's favorite, but the brothers were jealous, and they beat him up. They sold him. And he goes to Egypt, and even there, Potiphar's wife seeks to um, imprison him. And there's this long line of suffering. And so what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God used for good. God intended for good. God is Lord over their motivations. He is king. Think of Job in the Bible. Job went through tremendous suffering. And the devil wanted to test him, and he thought that he would fail. But through all of that, God uses it to bring about Job's praise, his adoration for God. And then again, think of the greatest example of this. Think of Judas, as we talked about today. His motives are so far from being pure. His motives are evil. But they are key. And that God used the motivation, the evil, wicked motivation of Judas to bring about the most glorious thing in all of history, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That. That brings hope. 
that even what man meant to destroy Jesus, that Judas wanted to betray him, the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, and they thought that they had won, the devil thought that he had won, but Isaiah says that the kings will shut their mouths before him. They are made to look foolish. Because God is sovereign over motivations. And so, in the same way, God is using sinful preachers to proclaim the good news. We see that here specifically, that some are preaching out of jealousy and some are preaching out of pure motives. So these people are preaching the good news and they still have sinful motives. And even still, God uses them to proclaim the good news and to advance his kingdom. Some of you guys know that um, I came from a church in Elizabethtown, and I don't want to spend too much time on, on, on this, but there was a time where I felt like I was in a very dark place. It was not a good situation for me to be in, um, and I felt like a lot of the motivations there were wrong. And so as I left and as I, Jessica and I prayed and, and God led us up here to Louisville and ultimately led us here to Fairdale, God has opened my eyes more and more and I'm so thankful for this. And I think that God has revealed two amazing truths to me. The first is that I was so sinful. And I'm great, great, so grateful that God revealed that to me. While I was there, I often um, kind of put a wall up and just thought it was all them. Even as Josh said today, I thought it was their problem and not mine. But I'm, I'm very, very grateful that God revealed to me that I was very sinful. And second, God reminded me that he uses sinful people. And this, is, is, this was freeing to me even as I was writing this sermon, to, to remember that somebody who is inadequate to preach the gospel, somebody who is sinful through and through, <coughs> somebody who is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> somebody who struggles and who's weak, that God still is gracious to use me. And there's a, uh, a quote from a rapper that I listened to, a Christian rapper, and he says this. He says that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. That is a hopeful thing, and I hope you guys get that. And that I'm not up here preaching because I am perfect, but I'm preaching in the grace of Christ. And I'm preaching from his perfect word. And so God is... God is still sovereign to use sinful people. And that is what's happening here as he says that some are preaching out of jealousy and out of rivalry. They're trying to show Paul that we don't need you to advance the kingdom, but we can do it on our own. And Paul could have responded like me in my situation and put up a wall and say, oh my goodness, they are so um, wrong and I'm gonna sit here and, and look down and focus on myself and get all upset, but Paul doesn't do that. But here he says, um, but whether their motives are pure, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached, so I rejoice. God is in control even when people are evil and sinful. 
And so just a side point, this should help us to be gracious with those sinners as we, sinful people, are being sanctified in Christ. This is not the main point of this passage, but it's something that we can apply here and and even as we leave, as we go go home into our marriages, into our relationships with our children, with workers, that we can be gracious to sinners knowing that we are one ourselves and that we, by God's grace, are being made more into his image, which should only lead us to love and care and be more gracious to those people. And so rejoice. That's, that's ultimately what, what this boils down to here in verse 18. Here he says, whether their motives are pure or not, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached. So I rejoice and will continue to rejoice. So that means we should rejoice and that we should rejoice that, that he uses sufferings to sanctify us and to advance his kingdom. We should rejoice that God is in control even when people are evil and sinful. How, how despairing is it to think that, that as, as the world goes on and as all these evils come about, that God is uh, scrambling to pick up the pieces to make, to make his will happen? No. It is joy, joyful in my heart, and it, it should lead us to worship and praise to know that, that even while people are sinful and events happen that are, that are just awful, that God is still great and mighty. He is Lord, and he is in control. We should rejoice in all circumstances, in all motivations, that God's will will be done. No square inch in all of creation is outside of God's sovereignty and his lordship. And if we are unbelievers, that should be terrifying. If we are unbelievers, the extent of God's rule, that he is king, that he is Lord, should terrify us. No sin is hidden from him. Sin will be dealt with. It won't be swept under the rug. But if we are believers in Christ, the news of God's sovereignty and his lordship and his kingship should be the most amazing and joyful news to us because all of those things, that that sin will not be ignored, that he sees all things, and it drives us to Christ. It drives us to the one who lived perfectly. Knowing and acknowledging God's rule and kingship should be something that brings us to our knees, but in a way that is joyful as we look to our Savior, we look to our risen Lord, and we rest assured that his righteousness, his greatness, his obedience makes us right and faith in him. And so I ask you and I ask myself, do we have a correct view of God's, of God's greatness, his sovereignty? Do we see him as an unstoppable God who, is, uh, who, who will accomplish his will, that he will bring us through to completion? If you look one page over in chapter one, at least for me, it says this in, in verse six, that I am sure that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes again. 
Do you see that? Do you see that verse that Christ is working to sanctify us, make us into the image of Christ? Do you see that when things are dim? When things, when life is painful, when you don't want to get, um, you don't want to push through this, you want to give up and, and, and cry. Many of you guys know that my dad is not doing well health-wise, and it's hard for me to look at him and see a man that was so gracious, who was such a godly example of a father, of a husband, to see a man who fathered so many people, went out of his way to serve and point them to Christ, to coach, to be my coach in baseball and basketball, to be a, a, a dad and a grandfather who loved to play with his kids and point them to Christ, to see him unable to do that anymore. To see legs that sought to serve, now they're too weak to move. It's hard to see that. And it's hard to see what silver lining there might be through this trial, to know that my dad will most likely pass away soon. And that my little girl will not get to experience the dad that I knew. The dad that would do anything that you would know that Christ is Lord. It's hard. It's hard to deal with. But Christ is king and he is using trials like this. He is molding my dad into the image of Christ. And he is doing something so wonderful through this suffering in my dad and in me and in my mom and my my sisters who watch this that will produce an eternal glory. And so as we deal with these afflictions of life, as we deal with these trials and sufferings, will we look to Christ and see our risen Lord and see that he is working in us and as he says, in verse six, that he will continue this good work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes again. But we stand in faith and say that everything that happens, everything that happens to us is to, is to advance and to spread the good news. That with all of the ups and downs that we would rejoice in Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even though I am sinful, even though I am inadequate, even though I'm not a great preacher or a a perfect pastor, God, I thank you that you are Lord over that. I thank you that we have your word to encourage, to correct, to rebuke, and to train us. God, I pray that we would cling on to your word, that it says that in all things, whether it's suffering, hardships, that you are Lord and you are working it for our good and for your glory. God, I pray that you would hold us fast in the grace to cling to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.